Our passage today is 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 19. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearts. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermenius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You've heard the saying before, He's a straight shooter. Or she's a straight shooter. And while that might have had its origin in marksmanship, when we say it today, we're generally not talking about somebody's proficiency with a firearm. You know, a straight shooter is someone who's frank, who's honest. He tells it like it is. She doesn't beat around the bush, but she gets right to the point. I mean, when we hit, especially when it's bad news, we often that's how we want it delivered. Doc, give it to me straight. In fact, we use the same expression, give it to me straight, when it comes to some of our beverages. I'll take my whiskey straight. In other words, I want it undiluted, uncompromised. Give it to me straight. And friends, this is what Paul is writing to Timothy in today's passage. He's saying, Timothy, give it to them straight. Don't dilute it. Don't compromise it. Don't beat around the bush. Don't get caught up in the weeds. Be a straight shooter. Give them the honest gospel truth. Because, Timothy, you know that there are some others. There are some others who have deviated from and who have diluted the truth. They've disappeared into the bush, becoming fast entangled in the weeds. Those people are no longer shooting straight, and they're, in fact, wounding the faith of others. But you, Timothy, Paul writes, but you, be a straight shooter and always give it to them straight. Because that is what God desires you and desires us to do. The central command in the passage that Kevin just read for us is verse 15. Verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. As one approved, receiving the stamp of approval. Church, Whose approval are you living for? You see, you can only play for the approval of one audience. Jesus himself said, you can take the stamp of approval down, Samuel. It doesn't need to stay up there. (laughs) You can only play for the approval of one audience. You know, Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he said, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And what Jesus was warning about God and money is just as applicable to any other God, to any other audience. Friends, you can only live for the approval of one audience. 
Do you want the approval of the culture? The approval of those that are popular? The approval of those that are in power? Or are you going to live for the approval of God? Because no one can serve two masters. Whose stamp of approval will you live for? And Paul says, Timothy, live for God's stamp of approval. Again, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And friends, what does he say God approves of? Approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, when my family and I, when we moved into the house that we now live in in 2015, the house needed a little bit of love. It needed some improvements. And some of those improvements, I did the work myself. And some of the improvements I hired professionals to do. And some of them I really should have hired professionals to do. Now, on the fly, I learned a lot about home improvement from the Internet. Painting, plumbing, drywalling, electrical work. Leah has a great photo of me sitting on top of a six-foot-tall ladder with a light fixture in my lap and watching YouTube video on my phone. Now, having made a lot of the repairs and improvements myself, today, friends, I stand back and I look at my work, and some of it I wince a little bit. I'm a little bit embarrassed by it because not that the work is bad, but it really doesn't look as good as it, it could have been. You know, that cut, it was not as straight as it might have been. That, 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 that other thing, it doesn't line up quite right. So some of the work I look back, I stand and I'm a little bit ashamed, a little bit embarrassed of my work. But on the other hand, all of the work that I hired the professionals to do, well, it looks a lot better in my work. They got done with their projects. They stepped back and looked at it and they had no reason to be ashamed because they had done their work with excellence. And you see, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, Timothy, when you're done your work, you want to stand back and you want to look at it. And not be ashamed, not be embarrassed. You know, again, you don't want your work to show that you are cutting corners. Do it with excellence. We want to strive to be workers who are not ashamed of the work that we do handling the Word of God. You see, we want God Himself to examine our work, our, our, the work that we do, studying, interpreting, obeying, and proclaiming the Lord, and not be ashamed because He sees shoddy workmanship or cut corners or an incomplete job. We want God's stamp of approval on our work. And what kind of work does He approve? Again, the worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That phrase, rightly handling, literally means cutting straight. Or to cut straight ways to proceed in straight paths. You know, the same Greek word is used in the Greek translation of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge the Lord and He will make straight your paths. When that was translated into Greek, they used the same Greek word. And again, in Proverbs eleven five, The righteousness of the blameless keeps His way straight. But the wicked falls by his own wickedness. So what's the idea that Paul is trying to convey to Timothy? He's saying, cut a straight path through the weeds, Timothy. Don't get distracted by quarrels about words in verse 14. Don't get hung up in irreverent babble in verse 16. Cut a straight path to the gospel. So that your followers, those who are coming behind you, might not get lost and entangled as so many have. 
See, the worker approved by God doesn't need to be ashamed of his or her work because he or she is a straight shooter. Not swerving from the truth, not getting entangled in the unimportant controversies over words, not one who gets lost in the irreverent babble of culture, the one who stays on the straight and narrow and leads other people to do the same. This is, and it always has been, Paul's charge in his warning to Timothy. You know, when Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, he concluded that letter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. This is how he concluded. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Friends, he uses so many of the same words there at the end of 1 Timothy as he uses again here in 2 Timothy, warning about those who have swerved from the faith, who've given in to irreverent babble and that which is falsely called knowledge. And friends, we need to watch out because the same dangers that threatened Timothy and the church in Ephesus then are dangers that threaten us and the church today. Because many have And many will come along with new and novel knowledge about what God's Word really means. And Paul says, Timothy, don't fall for it. Because this game is a game that's as old as time. It's a word game. From the very first temptation of humanity, we have been challenged with new and novel knowledge about what God really meant. You might remember that when the serpent approached Eve in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3.1, it says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree, any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? And he started to play a word game with her. Snakes have been challenging the Word of God ever since this first question. And they asked the exact same thing. Did God actually say? Is that, is, that, is that really what God meant? You know, because I have a knowledge, a new and a novel understanding of what God really meant by His Word. You know, is that what really God meant when He talked about sin? Is that really what God meant when He wrote about human sexuality? Is that really what God meant when He talked about male-female marriage? Is that really what God meant when he talked about the exclusivity of the gospel? Well, I have some new knowledge. A novel understanding of what God really meant in his word. And we start playing word games and asking the question, did God actually say? And friends, just as in Genesis 3, today many are still being led astray by snakes and charlatans. Those who've departed from the path, who've diluted the truth, and who are no longer giving it to you straight. Paul warns in verse 18, such persons have swerved from the truth. It's the same word that Paul, we heard him just use in 1 Timothy 6, those who've swerved from the faith. They've swerved from the straight and the narrow, from the truth. They're no longer straight shooters. They're no longer giving it to you straight and undiluted. They're playing word games with you. And as such, these teachers are, in verse 16, leading people into more and more ungodliness. And in verse 18, they're upsetting the face of some. Paul's warning Timothy, Timothy, watch out for snakes. 
Just like in the garden, there are snakes today threatening to lead others astray, saying, did God really say? And then proclaiming a new and a novel knowledge of what God really meant as they play games with words. And Paul knows that this is dangerous. It is so dangerous that he's not bashful in this passage about naming names, is he? In verse 17, he warns, And their talk will spread like gangrene, among them Hymenaeus and Philetus. You know, gangrene, friends, is dangerous. It's aggressive. It's deadly. And Paul says, so is false teaching. Just as gangrene is deadly to the body, so it has to be dealt with severely and decisively, often cutting off the infected and unresponsive part for the sake of protecting for the sake of protecting the whole body, so these false teachers, these false teachers, they're, they're perpetuating lies. And they are so dangerous that sometimes you just have to name names and cut persons off. Not to be mean, not to be judgmental, not to be unloving, but if they're really those that are not straight shooters who are threatening the health and the safety of the body, if their gangrenous teaching is spreading and infecting others, causing others to swerve and upsetting the faith of others, it would actually be irresponsible not to act decisively, to name names and to take action. And so Paul calls out these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, Hymenaeus, he actually has an unfortunate distinction. He has an unfortunate distinction of having been called out by Paul, not once, but twice. Because we meet him in Paul's first letter to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul encourages Timothy to continue holding to the faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Don't you hear it? Ah, Hymenaeus, my old nemesis, that we meet again. I mean, it kind of feels like one of those movies, doesn't it? We thought the bad guy had been killed at the end of the first movie. However, he surprises us by returning in the sequel going, you won't get rid of me that easily. And Hymenaeus is back. He's back in the sequel, still up to his old tricks. In 1 Timothy, Paul had said that Hymenaeus had rejected the faith in a good conscience and he'd unrepentantly shipwrecked his faith. And Hymenaeus was threatening to take other people down with him. And so to protect others, Paul says, I handed him over to Satan that he might learn not to blaspheme. And what Paul's describing here is church discipline, excommunication, to be excluded from the communion of the church. It's the same phrase Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. It's the idea that to be outside of the church is to be exposed to Satan without the shepherding protection of the community of Christ. And Paul's action is not meant to be punitive or, or mean. It's meant to be protective of the body and restorative to the sinner. It's not punitive, but protective and restorative. You see, because again, like we've already seen, such action has to be taken to protect the body. If there's a gangrenous teaching that's threatening the health of the body, Hymenaeus, who's unrepentantly swerved from the gospel and who persists in not shooting straight, needs to be removed. Now, church, let's understand, we all swerve. 
every one of us at some time or another fails to shoot straight. And the gospel, the good news on which you and I need to fall day after day after day, is that there's always grace. There's always forgiveness. And there is always restoration for the repentant. So what Paul is talking about here in the case of Hymenaeus is the case of somebody who's not repentant. Who despite instruction, despite warning, despite pleading, I'm sure, Hymenaeus persists in refusing to shoot straight and to give it to them straight. His life and his actions are threatening not just to shipwreck him, but to take other people down to the bottom with him. His teaching and his example is like a gangrene that's threatening to spread through and sicken the body of Christ. And he refuses the life-saving medicine of grace. And an unrepentant person like Hymenaeus has to be put out to protect the rest of the body from being infected by or shipwrecked with him. So the action that Paul has taken is protective of the body. But friends, it's not just protective of the body. It's actually restorative of the individual. Because the hope is Hymenaeus' repentance, not his destruction. This severe action of putting a person outside the fellowship, Paul even says, was that he might recognize the severity of his swerving. That he might recognize the seriousness of the disease. The prayer is that cut off from the community of faith, cut off from the sustaining grace of the Lord's Supper, left alone at the mercy of Satan, that he might recognize his fearful state, see his error, confess his need, and be restored. Because, friends, the balm of grace is readily available to we who repent. Always. This is the gospel. So the scripture teaches that action such as was taken with Hymenaeus was protective of the church and restorative for the unrepentant. And unfortunately, Hymenaeus is back not because he repented, but because he refused to repent. He's continued to refuse to recant, repent, or return. And worse, he continues to threaten the health of the church. And in 2 Timothy, we find Hymenaeus again, up to his old tricks, unrepentantly leading others astray. We hear a tiny little snippet of what they were teaching in verse 18. It says that they were saying that the resurrection has already happened. We're not sure the exact nature of this error, but it had to do with the return of Jesus and the final resurrection. You know, maybe there's some echoes of the modern day error that the Jehovah's Witnesses make. They they teach that the second coming of Jesus already happened in 1914. We just didn't see it because it was a spiritual return and not a a physical return. In the same way, it seems that Hymenaeus, Philetus, and their ilk were somehow teaching that the final resurrection had occurred. And what was that doing? It was upsetting the faith of other believers because they feared, did I miss it? Did, Did I miss the resurrection? That's not a good thing. Or maybe Hymenaeus and Philetus were were teaching that you really needed their special insider knowledge because then you too could have the kind of spiritual resurrection experience they had and they'll let you in on their knowledge for a pledge of devotion and just a small price. So we don't know exactly what the controversy was, but Paul warns, he goes, Timothy, church, these men are not straight shooters. They're not giving it to you straight. And in fact, they're quarreling about words and their irreverent babble. It's upsetting the faith of some. So Paul commands Timothy, shoot straight and warn about men like this who persistently and unrepentantly refuse to repent and who are leading others into the weeds. And this warning 
was so vital, so vital to the early church. Because you can only imagine how upsetting it must have been to the young church for the rise of these apostates and these false teachers. Yeah, I mean, consider how unsettling it is to see those who at one time were counted leaders in the church swerve from the straight and narrow and not only shipwreck their own faith, but lead others to do the same. Because church, it still happens today. In this era of social media and celebrity Christian culture, we're witnessing a growing phenomenon that's been called deconversion stories. You know, we're, we're seeing more and more people who attained a level of Christian celebrity, whatever that is. Many who were looked to as leaders and teachers that have swerved from and shipwrecked their faith. And often, like the false teachers in Ephesus, these persons gained what Paul called knowledge, falsely called knowledge. The danger is always that some people believe they've, they've outgrown, they've become too smart for the gospel. You know, the gospel was a stage in their ongoing spiritual journey, but now they have a knowledge and a maturity that, that's let them go beyond the gospel. You know, in 2019, ex-megachurch pastor Joshua Harris, who is author of the 1990s bestseller, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, he announced he was divorcing his wife. He's sorry he stood against marriage equality and declared he's no longer in any meaningful way a Christian. In February of 2020, YouTube sensations Rhett and Link of Good Mythical Morning and who are former missionaries for Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, announced they've left the faith and leapt into agnosticism. In May of 2020, John Steingard, former frontman for Christian band Hawk Nelson, went public with his own deconversion testimony. These people swerving and departing from the straight and narrow are upsetting the faith of those that follow them, and it leaves them feeling insecure and unsettled. If they've wandered, well, am I going to be able to make it? And if they've wandered, are they still saved? And if they've wandered, were they ever saved? And it unsettles us today. It unsettles the church in Timothy's day. How do we understand those that are becoming apostate, those that are walking away, those that are deconverting? Well, Paul closes his section here in verse 19 with an answer. But, but God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now that first word, but, is a connecting word. And so what he's saying here in verse 19 rises from his discussion of the apostates, the defectors, and the other false teachers who swerve from the straight and narrow. Those who shipwrecked their faith and threatened to shipwreck the faith of others. Paul says, despite all that, God's firm foundation stands. Church, that's the gospel. This is our confidence. What God is building, His firm foundation stands. God's purposes and His plan are unshaken by human failings and unfaithfulness. His purposes are firm, they are secure, and friends, God will prevail. Yes, people around you may seem shaken. Yes, people, persons may come and they may go. They may rise and they may fall. But God is not thwarted. God is not surprised. His firm foundation stands. And when Paul says that God's firm foundation stands, he's likely thinking back to what he said in verse 10. 
In verse 10, he said, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. God's firm foundation of his sovereign election stands. His foundation calling some to salvation stands despite apostates and defections and desertion. And notice that Paul's statement has a twofold emphasis. He first talks about God's divine sovereignty to preserve. And then he talks about human responsibility to persevere. God's sovereignty to preserve, human responsibility to persevere. Paul says, while some have become apostate, some have swerved and defected, the Lord still knows those that are his. And those that are his, he will preserve. And at the same time, those that are his will persevere, departing from iniquity. They will be found faithful at the end. While some may have swerved from the faith and it may unsettle others, making them fear that their own faith will fail, Paul offers an assurance. God preserves those that are his. And those that are his will persevere. Because God is sovereign. You know, I was dialoguing with one of our church family about this, and she was telling how she came to Christ and then wandered from him for a season, only to return to faith later. And she expressed, she said, well, I thought I had been saved, but then I wandered. So was I not truly saved? Or or did I lose my salvation and then somehow regain it? And then she wondered, well, what would have happened to me if, if I died during that time of wandering, that time of swerving from the faith? Friends, Paul offers us assurance here. The Lord knows and preserves those that are His. And the evidence of the Lord's preserving is that those who are His will persevere. I said to her, the point is, you didn't die in your wandering, did you? Because you could not have died in your wandering. The God who is sovereign over salvation and election is the God who is sovereign over your life and death. Jesus said, not a sparrow drops dead apart from God's permission. And you are more important than sparrows. Your life and death are held in His sovereign hand. The Lord knows you're His. He will preserve you and you will persevere, departing from iniquity, returning to Him, just as you now have. This truth would have been a great encouragement to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus as they faced apostasy, defections, and desertion. And it should be a great encouragement to us today. It should be a great encouragement as we hear so-called deconversion stories and witness the faith of some being shipwrecked. We see others who've stopped shooting straight and instead seduced by new knowledge and novel interpretations. Did God really say? Church, the Lord knows those that are His and those that are His, He will preserve. And those that are His, they will persevere to the end, departing from iniquity and following Him. So Paul says, Timothy, hang on to Him as He hangs on to you. Hang on to the One who is hanging on to you. Even if others swerve from the truth and shipwreck their faith, pursuing new and greater so-called knowledge, you persevere. You hold the course. You keep shooting straight. Rightly handle and submit to the Word of Truth. For only the one who handles the word of truth, only the one who shoots straight and gives it to others straight, undiluted and uncorrupted, only such a worker is one who's approved by God. Only such a worker needs not be ashamed before the Lord. And church, where are we? 
Where are you tempted by new and novel so-called knowledge? Did God really say? How are you and how will you work and say to show yourself a worker approved who doesn't need to be ashamed, who doesn't twist words so that they submit to what you want or what the culture wants, but who studies to understand so that you might submit yourself to God and to his word? And seeing others swerve and shipwreck their faith, how do you need the Lord to give you assurance and confidence and strength that you are known, that you will be preserved, and that the Lord working through you might help you to faithfully persevere to the end? Paul writes, keep shooting straight, Timothy. And Chestnut Street, keep shooting straight. For the Lord knows and preserves those that are His. And those that are His will persevere to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Gospel that it's not about us. It's about You. You know those that are Yours. Because when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful grasp. Though my love is often cold, He will hold me fast. Father, thank You for holding us fast, for preserving us as we see those around us who might fall and who might swerve. Preserve us and help us to persevere that we might shoot straight, and that we might deliver deliver the undiluted, uncompromised gospel of Jesus Christ to this world, so that all might know and join with us. We worship you and lay our lives down, that you might be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. In closing, please stand and join with us in singing a powerful hymn of the faith.